Hi, I'm Bob Fisher, your host today on This is Design Intelligence. Rick Archer is a founding partner at Overland Partners Architecture and Urban Design and served as Overland CEO from 2016 to 2023. He is an active leader in community initiatives around the globe with a focus on education, sustainability, social equity, and design that inspires human flourishing. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, he talks about what he learned from his time at the American Academy in Rome, what he learned about leadership from his time as CEO of Overland, and what he believes is the bedrock of any organization. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Rick Archer of Overland Partners, welcome to This is Design Intelligence. Thanks so much for coming and agreeing to speak with our audience. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here with you all. Well, one of the reasons I was so looking forward to our conversation today is that you're at a point in your career that's a bit of an inflection point, and those are often wonderful times to talk to folks uh, because they are both looking backwards into where they've spent their time and what they've learned and how they've grown and looking forward into how they can leverage all that wonderful experience into a positive future. Yeah, it's, it's almost almost more like a reflection point than an inflection point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So with this reflection and forward-looking point that you're at, really where I want to start is I understand that you recently spent some time in Rome. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing in Rome, what that experience was like, and how you got there. Sure. So I was invited by the American Academy in Rome to join them as a visiting scholar, visiting artist. And it's in many ways was a hope deferred. I had received a fellowship to study in Italy back when I was in my 20s and didn't go and then encouraged to apply to the academy when I was in my 40s and didn't do it. And um, I had just stepped down as the CEO of Overland after seven years in that seat. And I applied to receive this opportunity at the academy, and uh, my wife and I went and spent a month living uh, in the villa, uh, which sits on top of the Geniculum Hill in Trastevere, outside of the, uh, or overlooking the ancient city. And um, it was really an extraordinary experience to be there in this community of scholars and artists from across the country to have what they call as the gift of time and space to think and work. And that's exactly what it was. I had time and space that I never have in my day-to-day -day life to think about other things besides you know, my projects and my business and to work on other things as well. And it was an incredibly rich time of, of reflection. And I hope a time of inflection that that the trajectory of my life will be different as a result of having taken and had that that incredible gift. Now, did you have a particular agenda that you were working on while you were there? Well, interestingly, I submitted a proposal, and um, based on that proposal, I was going to explore the intersection of art, architecture, and faith. What better place to do that than Rome? But after I was selected, they made it very clear to me, you don't need to do anything that was in your proposal. We want you to come and just be here, let Rome speak to you and do what you were led to do because of the experience of being in this unique environment, in this unique community. And that's really what I did. I, 
I just tried to lay aside any expectation of how I would spend the time. Most days, woke up around seven, spent a couple of hours reading and writing. After that, the days typically had um, several hours just wandering in some part of the city, uh, exploring, spending time, not really feeling rushed to, um, to quote, do Rome, but simply be in Rome. And that in and of itself was an amazing gift because Rome is such a remarkable, wondrous place. Typically, we'd come back to the academy, have lunch at this very long table in the loggia off of the courtile or the courtyard with all of the other fellows and visiting artists and scholars, resident artists and scholars, and um, sit down next to anyone who might you know, be studying anything from antiquities to you know, contemporary art or architecture, incredible musicians, have conversations I never dreamed of having with people that I knew nothing about what they did. And you know, they felt the same with me. And so there was this incredibly rich interchange. Um, and then following lunch, I typically spent the day reading more, writing, drawing. I didn't intend to produce a lot. I ended up producing probably over 100 works there, which just happened as the natural outgrowth of me needing a visual way to express what I was experiencing. You know, actually, one of the pivotal moments was uh, the second night we were there, there was a, um, a lecture that was given by Peter Miller. And in the middle of it, he talked, he, he quoted Thoreau, and, and in it, that quote said, nothing but necessity and geometry remain. And while I wasn't sure I agreed with the quote, it got me really thinking about what remains. And so that question mark, what remains, was the defining question of my entire time in Rome. Uh, that meant both reflecting back on my career, my life as an architect, uh, as a husband, father, grandfather, and asking what really mattered, what, what remains of the things I've actually invested in, because there are a lot of things that just kind of disappear uh, and they, they don't really mean anything. It also framed a lot of questions as I walked around Rome and explored you know, the, the various layers. And there's a lot left there, a lot of which is meaningful and some of which isn't. And I was really contemplating a lot of what remains of Rome and why certain things remain and others don't. And then the real big question, you know, looking forward is with what remains of my life, what will I do with it? Um, what, what do I feel is uniquely mine to do? And that if I, you know, left this life without doing, I would feel maybe disappointed by. Right. And it sounds like it was both an intellectually and personally enriching experience to have this time to really think back and think forward. And it must have been a kind of delightful surprise uh, for it to have deviated in the way that it did from your original plan. But I'm wondering if it was really that far away from your original plan to start with. Well, I, I think at the end, it actually was all of the things that I sort of planned on, but they came at me in, in very different ways. I had solicited from people lots of recommendations on books to read, and I took a stack of books uh, and read every one of them, which kind of actually surprised me even. One of those, which I'm still working on, maybe a life's work, is Augustine's City of God, which he wrote when he was in Rome. And it's, you know, it's a treatise on what Augustine believed. And, and so I, I 
will say that that framed a lot of my thinking as well. And I, and I saw themes emerging in conversations with fellows and artists and scholars at the Academy in my reading and my writing in, in Rome itself that, that were all building upon one another. And I realized that, that in fact, I was in that very pursuit of connecting those dots uh, of my life while I was in Rome. Well, one of the most recent dots before that is that you spent uh, seven years as CEO of Overland Partners, which is probably one of the reasons that you didn't have the opportunity to go to Rome until you did. So tell us about that experience and how you got there and what you learned about leadership from it. Sure. Well, Overland is a firm that's, what, 37 years old this year, and um, I was one of the founders. And for many years, we didn't have a CEO or president. We got to a point where we had grown enough that we realized we were spending an awful lot of time as architects making business decisions. And so my partners asked me if I'd be willing to take on that role as our first ever CEO. And I was reluctant to do it, uh, eventually decided that I would. And, um, and it certainly was an incredible challenge. I was not equipped to be a CEO. I didn't train to do it. I'd never studied business. And although I, I love numbers, um, it was all certainly, you know, trial by fire. And I think that kind of as that emerged, uh, we were really forming a business at the same time that we were, we were growing a business. And in the last couple of years, we've, we've grown from 42 people to 110 uh, with offices exclusively in San Antonio to now having offices in Dallas, Denver, and New York. So it's been a real a time of tremendous change and growth. I can't say that I was responsible for that. I was more just hanging on for the ride and, and trying to help you know, navigate the ship as we made it through the beginnings of, of that growth. But I think the, the thing that as I reflect on that time, uh, the thing that strikes me that, that may have been the most important thing for me as a leader was that I really grew to love the people that I led. And I would really use that word love, that I had great affection for them, that when I would walk around the office and I would see the people who were in our studio, I, I really desired their best. And I think that's one of the things that I discovered that leaders do. And that that means that you come alongside and you encourage and you you push and you stretch them. I think I came in with the misperception that leaders make a lot of decisions. And I think one of my takeaways is that the better I got at leading, the fewer decisions I made. Oh, interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, I, th I think there are some really vitally important decisions that a leader should make. For example, who sits in what seat to make decisions is probably the most important thing. And yet, if you're going to grow an enterprise and you're going to grow people in that enterprise, you've got to hand off the decision-making to them and trust them to do their best. And I think that my partners and I believe that it would be good for us to begin to do that while we were still around, while we were still young enough to really help shape the trajectory of the firm. And so really, me becoming the CEO was a process of all of us letting go of the control of the organization and inviting others into the conversation and into the decision-making about who would become, how, why, when, and where. And, um, and that's been really rewarding to see people step in and, and do far greater things than, uh, than I would ever do or that we would do on our own. 
It sounds like what you did in your tenure was build a kind of infrastructure, if you will, or, or build some structures into which future growth could happen, right? So you went from having no CEO at all to having the role of CEO. And then I'm sure that that role was defined in large part by you in the first few years of your, of your tenure in it. And now you do have that as a, um, as a role, um, as an institution, if you will, uh, that will go into the future with the firm. And I'm wondering if it was part of a broader kind of professionalization or a broader kind of evolution going from, you know, something that was appropriate at a relatively small scale to something that could continue to scale up even bigger than it's grown recently. Well, I think there's no doubt that had we not begun that transition, that the growth would have been virtually impossible because you, you're really only as good as the decision makers and their ability to make decisions quickly. And when the board was making all decisions, that's just hard to do. We're architects, we're practicing architects, we're out meeting with clients, we're doing other things. And it, it became very time consuming. And, and while I think that we made good decisions, we couldn't make them at the pace of business. So the first thing I did as the CEO was created an executive team which included our VP of finance and business operations, a VP of, of client development or business development, and a VP of studio operations. And we and delegated each of those responsibility for those areas. So really as the CEO or president, whatever you want to call the that that position, my job was just really to make sure that they were each, you know, getting the support they needed to do what they were charged to do. And that's shifted over that seven-year period. The organizational model has certainly shifted as we've grown, but it's not, it's not far off from that. You know, Adam Bush is the new president. Um, we changed the title just because we wanted something that sounded less corporate. And, you know, Adam is 20 years younger than I am and is, you know, doing an incredible job. We had identified him as, you know, the, the potential uh, future leader early, early on. And, and so, spent a lot of time just bringing him alongside and letting him observe what we were doing and uh, delegating certain responsibilities to him so that he would he would learn while I was still you know sitting in that seat and he hadn't really required much from me since I've stepped down so you're you're touching on a topic that is of real interest to a lot of firms you know this idea of leadership transition you mentioned a period of time where you and Adam had some overlap, right? Where you could be there walking the road with him as he stepped into the chief executive role, uh, president, CEO, whatever you want to call it. But that can't be the whole story, right? So when you think about uh, your other partners and you know when they will be entering the next stage of their careers, what else is being done at Overland to to facilitate transition? Like, what, is that, what does that program look like? I would say it's very challenging because we're transitioning as we're growing. And so in order to grow, you're also growing leadership, you know, at, you're growing leadership at every level. You don't just grow at the bottom, but you have to grow at every level. And so while we are learning to delegate, we're also in, in some ways the, the board, which is the founders plus Adam, you know, have stepped in and, and are actually 
a little more actively involved right now during this growth period than than we were before. At the same time, our organizational model has shifted significantly. We've got six different areas that we operate in or market areas, and we have a leader in each one of those who has a lot of uh, authority responsibility for growing that area, for understanding the, the disciplines, the technologies, the, the marketplace, the client type. And rather than structuring around physical offices, which we talked about, uh, we decided that physical offices could lead into these kind of independent silos and that uh, by doing it by market area uh, and those market areas really overlapping with one another, that we could we could somehow try to avoid that separation that would happen by physical location. And I think, you know, we're about two years into opening the Dallas office, which was the first of the three new offices. And we are just now really getting our project teams fully integrated with one another. And there are people like, you know, James Lancaster and Michael Monceau, uh, who are in a part of that next generation of leaders who've really led that. And now in Dallas, a series of younger leaders who are also stepping up and, and so forth, while still really honoring the, the founders. I mean, those of us, us who are in my generation feel like we're valued here. Well, our opinions are welcomed. We've, we've never felt cast out. And I think that's part of what we've been trying to do is create an environment where the wisdom that we may bring, you know, is able to be brought to the table in a way that is received, but really applied in a way by people who are younger, who are looking toward the future in ways that we may not be able to see. I, I think that's that's been exciting. It's been challenging. I mean, we're, we're humans, right? There's all the relational dynamics. I don't want to let go uh, of something I created. And, and the same would be true for my partners. But we know that part of leadership knows when to leave. Part of leadership knows when to step back. That's that's part of being a good leader. And, um, and I think that, um, you know, I mentioned the first thing that I think about is love. But I would also say that one of the most important attributes of a leader is that you realize that you're there to serve others, that it is not about holding a title or a position. It's really about, you know, getting under the load and getting behind and beside people who are doing the work and who have agreed to follow you, which is an amazing gift when someone agrees to follow. And then, you know, helping them be a success. And I feel like we've been really blessed that both my partners who founded the company and then the next generation of leaders all, you know, carry that same attitude of servant leadership. So what were some of the influences on your leadership philosophy? You know, I know that you said earlier that when you took on the CEO's position, it was something that you didn't feel that you were prepared for, but yet you wound up developing a very robust and sophisticated philosophy of leadership. Where did you turn to for inspiration and information? Great question. I mean, the most broadly and and most significantly, my partners and I are all followers of Jesus of Nazareth, and so we turned to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and we said, "What are the leadership principles that we can derive from his life?" And um, I've been a student of that for quite a while. There's a, a book called Lasting Influence by Jock Cameron that is extraordinary in terms of really laying this out. Jock's book was really valuable to us. And he came down and met with our leadership and spoke to us about how he thought about leadership. 
Uh, certainly, you know, there are books like Collins, Good to Great, and, you know, all the, the tried and true kind of management books, which, which we read, uh, we consumed because we were eager to learn. And then we, we had some really good mentors. Uh, a couple of them come to mind. One was a gentleman by the name of Baker Duncan, who was an investment banker who believed in us, invested in us, uh, both personally and, and corporately. And then more recently, um, Merle Smith, who had been the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and served as an advisor on our board for many years. And those, those people who came before us really taught us a lot about how to think and not just taught us, you know, like talking heads, but taught us by being in our business with us, observing how we were leading, challenging us, encouraging us, you know, filling in the gaps when we didn't have what was needed. Unfortunately, both of those men um, have passed away, but but their legacy here is enormous. And um, and I would say we also um, we also really leaned on each other. My partners and I have had a gosh, a friendship since we were in our 20s. And um, you're often told, don't go into business with your best friends. We did. And we continued to cultivate that friendship in a way that made us a sounding board for one another. And we committed to being ruthlessly candid with one another about what we saw and felt and thought, knowing that the feedback was being given in love and that the relationship was not negotiable. And I think that's unique in that in most businesses, if the business isn't working, the relationship is negotiable. It's just like, well, we'll just get rid of him or her. But we haven't operated that way. And, um, and that's, I think, created a, a platform for growth that allows risk-taking without fear of retribution if and when you fail, because I and we have failed often. So we, we just try to fail fast, learn quickly so that we don't, you know, continue our mistakes over and over again. Yes. When you're in a situation where as a leader, you've kind of had to learn on the job, a lot of what you learn is very specific to the organization that you're in. As you look back on your time as a leader, what principles or elements or experiences do you think are transferable to other firms and organizations? You know, I think the most important thing as I reflect back on my time in leadership and, and our time leading begins with being fully who you are. You know, it's not being something you're not. And that means being transparent, means being vulnerable. And I know that that's not something that leaders like to do often, but I think it gets at one of the most important aspects of leadership, which is that you need the trust of the people who you're leading. And if you don't act consistently and you're not transparent and vulnerable, then people begin to distrust. I think the natural tendency is to distrust leadership. And so we need to begin by believing that that, that trust has to be earned uh, and that we earn it by caring deeply and then being willing to share with people our, our failures, our successes, and then both celebrating those and then working together to overcome um, where we failed. And I, I know that if you were to ask the people who work here, they would probably say that one of the things that I brought was a level of, of personal honesty and vulnerability that made them believe that I was telling them the truth and that, that I could be trusted. Yeah. And that, that trust, nothing else can exist without it. It really can't. It, it's the it's the bedrock of 
of any organization. Otherwise, you're walking around landmines all the time wondering when something's going to blow up and, um, and you cannot move quickly, certainly when that's the case. Yeah. So we've taken a very productive look at the past. Uh, I want to turn our attention to the future. One of the things that you've been involved with for quite some time is working with students. And I know from prior conversations with you that the future of the profession is very important to you. Tell us a little bit about your work with students, why you feel it's important, and what direction you may be helping them to find or leading them in. I would say not long after I graduated, I began to spend time at my alma mater, which is the University of Texas in Austin, and got very actively involved with the School of Architecture. That meant occasionally teaching a class or giving a lecture. And over the years, I've had the privilege, and not in small part because of the position I held, it does open doors for you to, um, to lecture at universities around the country and, and to talk about things that, that matter. I think that as a result of that investment, people begin to come to you more and they say, hey, I heard about the talk you gave at Harvard. Would you be willing to come and speak over here? And, and so uh, as that evolved, one of the organizations that I got to know was called Hundredfold. It's a not-for-profit architecture studio based in Montana. And what they do is they train and equip architecture students and then young architects to go into the developing world and to create safe and beautiful environments for human flourishing. And I was fascinated by their mission. And um, I guess it was probably 11 years ago, maybe 12, they started what they call Summer Studio. And they invited up to, say, 20 young students in architecture school to come and experience working in in and around their studio, uh, learning from people like me and, and others, many others, doing a design build, which they would execute. And so that first year I went up and I, I spent a week with them teaching, and then I've been invited back every year since. This last year was fascinating because it was in Nepal, and I was hiking the Himalayan Trail with 20 young people, teaching them about architecture and life while hiking. And I've never done anything quite like that. But the lessons that I was teaching, I think, were transferable, whether we were sitting in a classroom or hiking the trail, in some ways more valuable on the trail because we were encountering a lot of hardships and challenges and having to learn from one another. And I spent a lot of time really dealing with the issue of identity. And, you know, I, I will start always with them and saying, look, I'm going to be teaching you for a week. You deserve to know who I am. And so I spent some time, you know, sharing with them my life and the successes and the failures and inviting them to uh, look carefully at it, not as a perfect example, but as an example of somebody who's trying to make their way through. Then I talk a lot about our work and how, how our work at Overland reflects our values and both in terms of the relationships that we keep with our clients, but also the work itself, how it might literally demonstrate what we or what our clients value most. And then I invite them into a conversation about really applying that to their life. And because they're all architecture students, they have a similar sensibility. They look at the world in a similar way. And so we're able to have you know these really deep conversations about who we are has the most profound impact on what we do. 
So, you know, we say, I want to be a great architect. That's fine. But what do you bring to it? What life experiences do you know yourself well enough to know where you're strong and where you're weak so that in the work that you're doing, you can really have a transformational impact on the world. And um, I think probably in the, gosh, in the years I've been doing that, there's been a couple of hundred students who've come through that, that I've gotten to know and uh, many of whom I'm able to stay in touch with over the years. And it's really fun to watch them grow and actually uh, a handful of whom currently work at Overland. So it's, it's, it's also an incredible recruitment tool. That's not the goal of it, but it turns out to be an amazing way to get some incredible young people to come to work for us. Well, it sounds like a pretty amazing experience for everyone involved. So I've just got one last question for you, kind of on this theme of looking forward. So from where you are, from this reflection point that you're at in your career, as you're looking forward, what's one thing about the future of the profession that makes you concerned? And what's one thing that makes you hopeful? You know, I'm a very optimistic person. So when you ask me what concerns me or what worries me, I have to actually have to dig pretty deep for that. I, I would say if I have had a concern, and I do see some movement away from this, is that we as a profession have in the past avoided what I would call the, the world's greatest challenges. That we have we are perceived as at times being, you know, in our ivory tower, you know, coming out and saying, Ta-da, don't you love it? When in fact the the work is done, I think in the trenches, it's really done by deep inquiry, by engaging in the with the people who will will be not occupying our buildings, but but really in a relationship with them. And and so that's hard work. And so if we don't address those larger issues uh, that we face as as a society, then I'm actually pretty despondent about our future because I think we as architects, as design professionals, have a lot to contribute in the way we look at the world to address those concerns. What makes me super hopeful is that we have a generation of young people who are uh, coming into this profession who are typically not getting into it in order to be famous. That was me. Like I, I admit it, Nietzsche said that architects are drawn to uh, fame like moths to a flame. And I would say that I, I was definitely getting singed in my early career. But I don't see that very frequently now. I see most young people, you know, coming into the profession uh, with a real heart to make a difference. And I think perhaps the challenge that they face is they don't realize there's a lot of hard work to get there. Uh, there's a lot of grinding out details and figuring out how a building goes together and, you know, before you ever get to go out and change the world. But I think that there is a deep desire to do that. And, and I think if we, the leadership, come alongside them, the older leadership come alongside them and encourage them, that there's a tremendous amount for us to be hopeful for, that, that we are seeing work being done now that, that is, I think, really making a measurable difference in, in human outcomes and in the outcomes for the planet, and that if we will seize those and do what we're capable of, that we can actually show the rest of the world a path forward through the morass of issues that we find ourselves entangled in today. Well, Rick, I want to thank you again for coming and sharing this wisdom with us. Thank you, Bob. Uh, and painting for us a, 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 an optimistic view of the future that we can all rally around. Thank you again. Thank you, Bob. It's been great to be with you. 
Thanks for what you guys do. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.